Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. The first brand that you remember having an impact on you as a child. So you, you remember those really ugly pants, Z Cavaricis? <laughs> I, 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 Not really. I, I mean, they were, the, I mean, you can look them up online. They're, they're hideous. I, I so wanted a pair of those. <laughs> and my parents said no. Uh, my 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 parents were always, I think, um, very sober about spending money on on silly brands, and I think that actually helped form, in some ways, uh, even my view about uh, stuff like that. But I remember it was—I I really wanted those pants. You never got them. No, I never got them. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years. I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is Adam Simpson. Adam's the CEO of EW Scripps Company, a $1.2 billion company that has a huge portfolio of local and national media brands. Scripps is an old company founded in 1878 with a purpose to give light and people will find their own way. In this podcast, Adam talks about his learning as a CEO and about the absolute importance of journalism and about building better news literacy among the citizens of the United States. This is my conversation with Adam Simpson. Congratulations, Adam. You're the first active media executive on the CMO podcast. We had Tim Armstrong. He's not active anymore, ex-CEO of AOL. So we're delighted to have you to unpack journalism, brands, marketing, advertising, everything. So thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome to Scripps. Thank you. So when I say the word Stitcher, what comes to mind? Podcasting. What about podcasting? Well, we really think podcasting is going to be uh, one of the most important mediums for the future of journalism and storytelling. Uh, and uh, digital audio in general is growing very, very quickly. Streaming is huge. Uh, you know, we have holdings in both streaming and podcasting. And, and Stitcher, I think, plays an important role both as a content creator, as a, a monetization platform for podcasts that we at Scripps own and create, as well as you know, several hundred others that we, uh, we rep in the, uh, in the advertising marketplace. Uh, and then it's also a, a popular listening platform. So you're being humble. It's the biggest platform in the world, correct? 
for podcasts? Uh, we are the largest podcast company uh, in the world. Uh, if you sort of think about it from a uh, all-in perspective with respect to advertising, yes. So I should be a bit intimidated because I'm talking to the guy who probably knows more about podcasts than anyone in the world. Could, I, could you make that claim? No. But I think I'm um, uh, informed. Uh, I've got opinions, uh, but we also, uh, I think, have a terrific team that runs Stitcher. We have a, a terrific group of executives that you know work around uh, the company uh, and each focus on different areas. Super. So what's your advice, though, since you're informed? Since we're starting the podcast, what would make this really terrific for you, for our listeners? Well, you've, you've got to be entertaining. You've got to be interesting. All right, I'll try right? my best. I mean, this is on you. You too. Not, really? Well. <laughs> so listen, I, I, want to, um, I do want to make this informative and entertaining and useful. And I want to get to your path to CEO because I think it's an unusual one. But before I do that, I would like you to share with our listeners what is special about the EW Scripps company. This is a company of mission. Uh, this is a company that's been around uh, serving uh, audiences uh, and advertisers in the United States for more than 140 years. And it's a company that does so um, with a high level of responsibility uh, for the mission. And the mission is? Uh, we are really focused on quality, objective journalism. Our motto, I think, says it all, give light and the people will find their own way. Uh, it's about uh, trying to provide news and information for people so that they can make informed decisions in their lives. And you stayed here for 16 years? I've been, I've been uh, at the company since 2002. 2002, yeah. okay, super. So your path to CEO, you, you started, um, you went to school at UCLA. So my wife did as well. So Go my Bruins. daughter, she's a double Bruin. Okay. So when you were at UCLA, you majored in communications. I did. What was your thinking coming out of UCLA in terms of your career? What did you want to do? What was your, did you have a long-term plan or no, short-term no, no real long-term plan? Yeah. I mean, I, I think my focus was on being an investigative journalist. Uh, and that's about as far as I thought. Um, I wanted to be an investigative journalist uh, and to have um, done important work by the time I was about 28. Uh, and I've never really thought further than that. Um, this company has taken me on quite an adventure. Um, but um, I even came to this company, I think, as a result of my focus on investigative journalism. So I spent the first uh, 15 years of my career inside newsrooms in Los Angeles and Chicago and in, uh, in Phoenix doing just that uh, investigative journalism. As you think back on that time in your career, what was kind of the juiciest thing? that you worked on that you're kind of, that's most defining for you? Yeah. I mean, back in, uh, 1998, I think it was, I did a story in Los Angeles that for the longest time I actually couldn't escape. Uh, it was a story, uh, in which, um, we spent several months undercover inside, um, uh, failing restaurants in, uh, Southern California. Uh, they were restaurants that had been habitually investigated by the health department, yet the health department wasn't ever doing anything to shut it down. And um, that story came at a really interesting time in the media marketplace. It was a little bit after the Food Lion case. And so there were a lot of media companies that were fairly gun shy about using, uh, uh, I think, 
uh, intensive investigative techniques like um, uh, hidden cameras to establish proof of something. And uh, I was fortunate that uh, the attorneys I worked with at CBS and the reporter I worked with uh, was entirely supportive. Um, we uh, did that story. Uh, it changed uh, the law in California. I think that was a, the first time I had sort of an aha moment around the power of pictures and of television, uh, allowing our viewers to see what was happening behind the kitchen door of some of these restaurants. And yet they were continuing to be um, allowed to remain open, uh, provided, I think, an impetus for lawmakers to change the rules. So when you go to LA or, uh, you know, oftentimes in other cities and you see grades in the window, that comes as a result of the story I did back in, uh, in the late nineties. Wow. I was just in a restaurant in Southern California. We were looking at the grading in the window with my kids and we start talking about that and what the origin of that was. So I didn't know. So there now you I do. Yeah. Very good. So you came to, you were doing investigative work and you came to Scripps in 2002 and you came to do investigative reporting here as well? So I had been running our investigative team in Phoenix uh, and I was offered the opportunity uh, to move to Cincinnati to steward uh, that strategy uh, at all of our TV stations. We had nine television stations at the time. Um, my wife was graduating from uh, business school and P&G offered her a job. So she came to work for P&G. I came to work for Scripps. Uh, and, that was convenient. Uh, yeah, it was perfect. And here we are, uh, you know, 16 years later. And she stole a P&G? No. What, what was she working on at P&G? She was uh, a brand manager. She launched, uh, first she was on Femcare and then she launched uh, Definity as the brand manager with Olay. And then she went to uh, Global Facial Cleansing. And uh, after our second child, she decided to stay home. So you came here to establish sort of that, um, I mean, investigative journalism across the stations. You moved from that into other areas. So I don't want to walk through your whole career at Scripps up through CEO. You've been CEO about two years now. Right. right? But I would like you to tell me sort of in that you stayed here for 16, 17 years in that career path, what were the sorts of things that have helped you be the leader you are now? What shaped you from an investigative journalistic reporter to a very capable CEO? What were kind of those experiences, those mentors, you know, those engagements that you feel sort of prepared you for what you're doing today? I, you know, I think I've always had a willingness to raise my hand. Um, and uh, I think that willingness has um, allowed me to. Um, take on uh, roles and opportunities. What's interesting about my career path at uh, Scripps is that um, this job, the CEO role, is the first role that actually existed before I sat in the job. So there have just been several opportunities that have been presented to me or that I um, found myself in uh, because the company had a need. Mm -hmm. and um, so you were new in those roles i was new in the roles the roles were, were new, new. Yeah. and um each time somebody said you know gosh we really need to uh develop um uh focus on content and marketing for an interactive media division it's a brand new division we've got these new companies around the country uh 
you know, you're out in the television business. Would you be willing to come over here, you know, and and uh, and take a chance and and do this? And every time somebody sort of said, "Look, I just want to warn you, whenever you take a chance, it's it's possible it doesn't go well." And that never dissuaded me from doing that. And I've had a lot of good advice along the way from people inside and outside the company about that. Uh, but I think for me, it's always been a willingness to take a risk. And I think. Um, sort of a prudent level of risk tolerance, both in business as well as in my life. Has there been a mentor that comes to mind along the way that's been extra important in your career and your development? I've had a lot of mentors. I mean, I think um, Rich Bainey, who was uh, the chairman of Scripps today and was the CEO before I was, uh, was a mentor. I remember Rich telling me on more than one occasion as, um, as I was being offered one of these roles, sort of sitting me down and saying, look, just to be clear, right, when you take a role that is um, of higher profile, you know, your head is a little bit higher up in the clouds, which is is a good thing, but it also means it's quite likely to get shot off if things don't go well. And you've got to be ready and willing. And I think that's something that's helped him through his career path. He also was a journalist, a business reporter. Um, and, uh, and, and that's the same thing, I think, that's helped me sort of see my way forward. I mean, career paths are never linear, right? Can you talk a little bit about some of the stumbles? You were, you were in new roles. There's bound to be stumbles, failures, productive failures. Oh. Some of those along the way. Tons. Yeah, tons. I mean, I think... Um, you know, look, there there have been moments where I advocated for um, acquiring companies and uh, and uh, it didn't go uh, in the right direction. Um, you know, I've certainly um, started in roles. One of the things that I recognized uh, fairly early on was you have to have a high level of patience, not only with yourself, but with others around you. Uh, almost all of the roles, since they were new roles, uh, required me to be able to um, navigate um uh, legacy structures and to uh, sort of blaze a trail that didn't exist. And that's, you know, that's tough. And um, it's really easy to sort of step on yourself and get in your own way. And I think um, I've developed uh, a level of patience that oftentimes people will be starting in roles here and they'll ask me for advice. And I'll say that I'll say, look, you've got to be really patient with yourself. We'll be patient with you at Scripps. We're not expecting you to add value on day one. In fact, I would say that sometimes it really helps to just come in and sort of start soft. Seek to understand what's going on around you, understand what the concerns are of the people around you, what might the psychological pitfalls be, and, and help yourself navigate towards a place where you can be effective. Because if you come in immediately and just guns a-blazing, um, Try and uh, try and affect change. You know, you're really likely to step in it, and I think that's something I've learned. Yeah, I was just meeting with the new dean at the University of Cincinnati Lindner College of Business, and she's been in the job two months. And she said, everyone asked her for her vision or priorities, and she said, I'm just going to learn. And she said, I've had 512 meetings in two months, and she said, I'm now starting to see themes. But that's the way to come in, right? Listen, learn, right. meet people, get yeah. their points of view. Yeah, and I think I think um, I think you've got to just take some time, right? I think even if you feel a high level of urgency, which uh, is part of my nature, to get stuff done, you have to understand the problem you're facing, the challenge you want to correct, um, the opportunity you're trying to get after. You've got to understand it from multiple angles, and oftentimes, I think when you come into a role, uh, you feel um, a level of agency to, to, to just go. Uh, and, and that's actually the wrong instinct, I think. Yeah. 
So you're CEO about two years. Did you feel when you were appointed that you were ready for it? You know, I um, was quite frankly caught by surprise. Um, I didn't necessarily think I was uh, the top candidate or the most likely person to be chosen for this role. Um, I was running the part of our business that was the smallest uh, our digital, uh, our digital initiatives, uh, certainly focused on the future, but not necessarily providing the sustenance, the cash flow for the present. And, um, and so I had sort of lulled myself into this view that, you know, it wasn't going to be me and that would be okay. And I would work my way, uh, forward. Uh, and so, um, we had a lengthy succession process here and it included, uh, I think a tremendously valuable engagement with uh, executive coaches. And I remember having a conversation with the executive coach and he said, you know, listen, I'm having this conversation with everybody. I want you to go home and have a conversation with your wife. I want to talk. I want you to talk with her about how your life could change if the board ends up choosing you to run the company. And we had a very uh, perfunctory conversation because as I said, I, I really did not expect this to happen. Um, and so I don't think I was entirely prepared. Um, I think I was prepared from a business perspective. I certainly think I was prepared from a, you know, uh, mission perspective, but from a personal perspective, um, you know, it's, it's been, it's been challenging. It's been difficult. Uh, I've enjoyed it. It's a humbling experience to have the opportunity to lead a 140 year old company like this focused on journalism. Uh, but, um, you know, I, you know, I think, I think you're never fully aware of what it's going to take to be the CEO of a public company until you suddenly find yourself in the seat. So what the, that perfunctory conversation you had with your wife, was there anything in that conversation that's come true? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Change, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, uh, I remember, um, not long after I took over, we went through a series of reorganization and restructuring the company, um, uh, we, we cut about $30 million in costs out of the company. And, uh, you know, here in Cincinnati, that was covered uh, probably in my mind uh, too well by the local media, including the business journal here. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was at a social event and somebody from across the room uh, sort of was smiling and making light of this and sort of said, ha ha, you know, we're going to call you the hatchet man. And these were gut wrenching decisions. In many cases, some of the people that, um, were, uh, let go uh, and laid off, um, were people that I had hired, uh, that I had personal relationships with that I had known for years. They were difficult decisions. And so this idea that, and by the way, the person who was sort of making light of this was somebody that knows me, um, and knows my ethic and knows sort of how I feel and how I operate. And so there was this idea that suddenly I had a different role, that my business card changed and that my personality had suddenly changed, that I had become hardened, uh, that maybe these things didn't matter to me, um, that their idea of what a CEO was, now I fit into. And I found that very difficult. Uh, it was really upsetting to me, actually. I remember leaving, um, leaving the event and going home and just getting really upset about that because you know, I, I, I took that very, very seriously. I took the decisions we made here to restructure the company seriously, and the implications were serious as well. So um, anything, you know, beyond that, 
experience you just described. Has anything surprised you in this two years as being CEO? I mean, I've had a lot of surprises. I mean, we've been through uh, a uh, proxy fight with an activist, fairly unpleasant experience. Um, uh, we have, uh, I think, uh, seen the benefits of communicating with the market and executing a very clear plan. Um, and uh, we've seen uh, our stock price rise. I've seen the uh, impact of uh, what happens when the market gets a little inefficient and irrational. And we've seen our stock price fall. I'm, I'm watching our stock price go up right now uh, as the sector sort of works through some of these things. Um, you know, one of the I think one of the things that um, I've come away with is that if you feel like you've got a strong plan, if your plan um, will deliver value for shareholders, for employees, and will allow you to continue to execute your mission of providing quality objective journalism across this country, both in the local markets where we operate, as well as with our national businesses. Um, and if you think you can do that in a way uh, that um, uh, allows your employees to be empowered, um, then you're on the right track and you have to remain resolute. Mm -hmm. So in terms of a leader, what what skills are you working on as CEO? I mean, you, you, you know, said you had a coach, but what yeah. are the kinds of things that you're trying to get better at, refine? Um, I, I, you know, I would say that communication, uh, communicating to the company is something that um, we work on a lot here. When I came into this role, I wanted to enhance the level of transparency with our employees. Uh, and so uh, we began... Uh, a monthly uh, column that I write called On My Mind, in which I tackle usually uh, something that's going on in the industry, something that's going on here at Scripps, and then something that's going on in my personal life. I really wanted to make sure that transparency was universal. Um, we've, uh, we've done a lot of visits to our, our businesses. We continue to work with our shareholders. I, I'm very focused on transparency with our shareholders. Our view is we're borrowing their money and we're going to return it to them in a larger sum. And I think that requires a, a level of transparency. And so when we think about sort of the way uh, to communicate, I think we're constantly experimenting and iterating on, um, on uh, identifying ways that we can continue to enhance transparency across the company. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. So in the two years, what are you most proud of so far in terms of what you worked on with your team? Uh, I'm, I'm really proud about the way, uh, I'm really proud of the way the company is continuing to define its brand for a long time. Um, we didn't have a brand. I think the EW Scripps company was a company based here in Cincinnati. I recall, um, you know, joining the company when I first moved here and most people didn't even know what it was. I would say things like, oh, we're the company that started HGTV or maybe, you know, channel nine. Um, uh, but nobody knew the brand of the EW Scripps company. And when we began to build out national media, when we began to hire people here in Cincinnati, we recognized we were going to need to have a, a stronger employment brand. Um, we also recognized that there was um, an opportunity for us to differentiate 
our company among our peers because of our focus on journalism. Um, we're a family-controlled company. The Scripps family has stewarded this company for that 140 years, and I think that differentiates us. And so I'm really proud of um, the way we're able to provide value to shareholders while simultaneously doing something that I think is um, at risk. I mean, I, I, I truly believe that our democracy is at risk if we're not able to safeguard the journalist's role in society. We're going to get to that in a few minutes because that's a that will be a powerful part of our con our conversation. I want to flip into a little bit of a discussion on change, which is so hard in organizations. And you referred to a restructuring and the difficulty that always is. But you know, from the outside, you seem to have morphed as a company pretty well in your portfolio of companies and how you are changing you know, your work based on how media is changing and how journalism is changing. So tell me about that. I mean, that looks from the outside, that's been pretty well handled. Uh, you're not the same company you were when you joined or even five years ago. How have you done that? What could others learn from you on that? Because it seems like you have a pretty forward-looking portfolio of companies right now. We do, we do. I think the company has a long history of um, focusing on where the media consumer is going. And it's just literally a part of the culture. So we talk about it all the time. We talk about the need for us to recognize that we can both be incredibly proud and bullish on the future of local television while simultaneously being willing to recognize that it's being disrupted and that this company should focus on identifying areas of profit in the disruption. So I think a lot of companies fall into the trap of, of playing defense. They play defense, they um, uh, want to either put up blinders and ignore the disruption, they want to um, uh, keep their employees focused on uh, their core business and, and, and don't want them to identify ways for them to innovate. Um, at this company, for a long time, I think we've, um, we've looked at the changes in technology um, in the media landscape and not thought about how it was going to disrupt us, but thought how we could deploy capital to profit from it. And I mean, this goes way back, way before me, way before the internet. Um, this company was one of the first companies to get licenses to operate radio stations. This company was one of the first companies to dig trenches in the ground and actually lay you know, cable uh, in order to be a, an MSO or an MVPD, a cable company. Uh, this company was one of the first companies to get you know, television licenses in this country. And so the history and the culture in this company is always about innovation and, and evolution. It's not something um, that we have to uh, sort of discuss um, on a daily basis because it's part of our DNA. In the same way that um, I think we're mission focused and focused on journalism. We're incredibly entrepreneurial, and it's just a part the, part of the legacy of this company. How has that been sustained? I, I get I get it. It's in your DNA, but a lot of companies um, that sort of things in their DNA, and it and it somehow gets lost, or they get distracted, or they don't nurture it. So, is it the discussions you have on your leadership team? Is it the places? Is it how you spend your time? Is it um, you know? Is it the meetings you go to? I mean, just what. What, what kind of has helped sustain that? I mean, I think um, ultimately, you know, as a, as a public company, it's the board's responsibility to set the tone and, and to, to um, set the expectation. Uh, uh, as, our, um, as our controlling shareholder, it's the family's expectation 
that um, we will execute a mission to perpetuate. And in the media landscape, if you're going to perpetuate, you know, getting yourself painted in the corner or consolidating, you know, into one thing without thinking about the implications of that consolidation is really, really dangerous. And so I think that conversation happens all the time in the boardroom. It happens all the time with our senior leaders. Uh, I think we try, as I described uh, earlier with uh, our focus on transparency, to make it a conversation we have all the way through the organization. So while we absolutely want people to be focused on executing their day-to-day mission, I think we also want people to recognize what's going on around them. We have the benefit of um, employing uh, an incredible workforce that is also uh, a large group of consumers, right? Every one of our employees wakes up in the morning and the first thing they do is they pick up their mobile phone, they check their email, they go to Twitter, they go to Facebook. Um, Maybe then, they turn on uh, the television and uh, flip on one of our news channels. Uh, Maybe then uh, they um, turn on the radio uh, on their way here. So we don't have a lot of selling to do to explain to our employees how the media landscape is changing. I think they're all bought in. And I think that really makes it, um, makes uh, ensuring you have a culture, uh, an entrepreneurial culture, a culture of innovation, uh, a part of the, uh, a part of the landscape here. I want to get your, uh, your view and your lens on marketing and brands and CMOs now, because you work with a lot of them. So the first question I have for you is describe to me in your mind, the ideal CMO for the times we are living in now, what are the characteristics? What are the kinds of things this person works on, takes a point of view on, uh, what kind of culture do they seek to build? So just riff a little bit on what you see as the ideal senior marketer or CMO these days. Uh, I think you've got to have a uh, blend of uh, science and discipline along with creativity. You know, it, it, it seems to me in the past, your CMO was the, um, the most creative thinker, the person who was going to come up with uh, the, the brand, the positioning statement, uh, the tagline that was going to differentiate your product in a crowded marketplace. Um, and uh, whether that worked or not would be held until after the campaign succeeded or failed. And I think today we just operate in an environment where there's just so much data, uh, so much information about consumer behavior, consumer preference, that one can't make decisions uh, in a vacuum. And so I think CMOs today have to have that blend. Um, I think CMOs, like any uh, chief executive, have to um, be really good at listening. Uh, whether it's listening to the research, listening to their consumers, uh, listening to their employees, surrounding themselves with um, a level of diversity that helps inform the strategy. Uh, we, we, you know, we talk a lot about um, making sure we have the right people at the table for ourselves as well. And I think CMOs have to ensure that the people advising them represent every corner of the business and of the consumer. So who do you admire these days? I know it's a hard question in terms of brands, uh, people, CMOs, you know, I feel um, like it's doing innovative things. I'm a big fan of Subaru. Um, I think that brand um, has a very clear uh, point of differentiation. Uh, I think they've done a really good job of remaining focused on executing a product strategy that reflects the brand. Uh, And, you know, they continue to, um, I think, uh, demonstrate that 
they know who their consumer is and they're going to continue to build products for that consumer. I don't think they're trying to uh, move uh, into the luxury market. I don't think you're seeing them trying to build pickup trucks when everybody's moving towards pickup trucks. I think they've recognized who their market is and how they're going to get after it. I, you know, I drive a, I drive a Subaru. Um, and when people ask me what brand sort of represents you, it, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's Subaru. It's a very approachable car. You can't spend too much money on it. Uh, it comes with a reasonable amount of bells and whistles. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, I feel pretty good about throwing my dog in the, in the back, uh, to take her hiking. Uh, if my kids come into the car and their feet are dirty, I'm comfortable with it. It's okay. And that really, I think does a pretty good job of, um, giving you a sense of sort of the, the kind of person that I am as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good. So, uh, you know, as you look forward with your lens on media, what would you like, what would you like brands to be doing more of what kind of activities should they be get leaning into that they are not? I think um, I think we've got to recognize that incumbency matters. Um, you know, I, I've listened to your show before, and you often ask people to describe uh, a commercial that made an impact on them. And I just sort of believe that if you continue doing this show for the next 15 years from now, and you sit here with an executive 15 years from now and ask them what uh, what brand or what commercial most resonated with them. It's unlikely that they're going to give you a search term. It's unlikely that they're going to read you the copy from a Facebook ad. It's unlikely that it's going to be a display ad that suddenly resonates with them and that they really identify with. So when, when you think about um, the power of television, when you think about um, why it remains the strongest and most important vehicle for brands and politicians, by the way, um, I think uh, CMOs have to recognize that um, and sort of get it's it's that balance of science and art, right? Sort of recognize that we have work to do to ensure we're delivering a level of science back on the effectiveness of your campaign. But at the same time, there's there's a tremendous amount of data that comes from uh, digital display, and and I think digital display has its place in the media mix, uh, but. Um, for years, brands have been built and profit has been made on the back of campaigns where there was no click-through rate, where there was no um, uh, search term associated with it. And I, you know, I just, I just still believe that's going to remain um, remain true. I think television, uh, pictures, and storytelling is just such an important uh, way to get a message across. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. Adam, I want to talk to you about purpose. And uh, purpose is the mantra today in marketing. And if you go to the A&A show or CAN or CES or where, you know, 
purpose is in almost every piece of uh, conversation, every dialogue. Uh, the great brands of the world are trying to seek a higher meaning, activate it, bring it to life. So that's sort of the essence of your company. And I know you as a human being believe in the purpose of your company, and that's why you've stayed as long as you have with Scripps. So I'd like you to talk about that purpose, why it's so important today, and what you're trying to do to bring that to life with all of your employees and in everything that you do. And I'm, I'm really pushing at this and pulling at that at this so that others can learn from you uh, because, um, you know, it's, it's easy to state a purpose. It's a lot harder to act on it and to act on it over time and to, and to really measure it and live it and make it important in the company. In many ways, um, this is, you know, a critical question for us as a company, but at the same time, um, it's one that's a little bit easier for us to answer. This is not a company that has to do a research project to determine what our brand promises and what our purpose is. Um, we don't uh, employ um, a consultant to help us identify a way to resonate with our consumers. We deliver every day a product to millions of Americans around the country. And our promise is that we will give them the information they need to live a fully informed and engaged life in this country. Uh, we will do so uh, with a high level of objectivity, with a focus on quality, so that when they walk into a voting booth, so that when they um, go to the store, so that when they have to determine how to make a decision uh, with their children, they do so with the benefit of the information that we provide them. And that's what we've been doing for 140 years. So there is nothing fancy about that. Uh, it's just hard work and dedication. The people that work in this company, the people that decide to make a career out of journalism, uh, they are making a decision to spend their life doing important work. You know, ours is a mission and a career that is listed in the Bill of Rights. And that's unusual, I would say, these days, right? Uh, and so when you think about um, our purpose, it's very, very clear. And uh, we don't want mercenaries here. We're not interested in people who want to come here to be famous or to get rich. If that happens as a result of the work they do, I think that's great. We are a company that wants to help facilitate um, execution of the mission. And we make our money by helping drive Main Street. We make our money by connecting engaged eyes and ears to local and national brands. And it's really as simple as that. There's nothing fancy about it. How do you keep that alive, though? You know, how do you do that in your daily work, in your communication, in your new hires? I mean, it's a beautiful mission. It's a simple one. It's an important one. As you say, it's in the Bill of Rights. But you, it doesn't happen happenstance, right? You have to work to keep that important. So what sorts of things do you do and does your leadership team do to keep that alive and, and to keep it, uh, you know, energetic? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is um, why I wake up every day. It's why I come to work. Uh, you know, one of the things I think that differentiates this company from our peers today is this focus on journalism. And we aspire to hire people that feel the same way. 
So whether it's a software developer or somebody in accounting, whether it's a television reporter or a podcast producer, when we hire people, we want people who are people of mission, people of purpose. Uh, and frankly, if you are trying to make a decision between working for us in an insurance company and um, you're not sure which one to go to uh, based on uh, the product and it's just, you know, it's going to come down to a thousand bucks here, a thousand bucks there. I'd rather you go work for the insurance company because at the end of the day, we want to make sure that everybody in this company is focused on that mission. Uh, it, it's just, it's, it's that important. And from my seat, I do a lot of communication about this. I mean, we, we really put a lot of effort around evangelizing this company's mission. I mean, you know, I, I think it's not just about trying to build the employment brand and recruit people. It's also about making sure everybody understands what we do really important work here. Um, this industry doesn't pay the best. Scripps doesn't pay the best. What we do do is provide you with an opportunity to make sure that um, you are spending your time away from your family at the office or in the newsroom or on the sales floor supporting important work in this country. You are a very purposeful leader and your company is very purposeful. And if you, if I put you in front of a mixed group of uh, senior marketing people from the automobile industry, consumer packaged goods, beverages, hospitality, a whole mix of industries. What would you share with them? I mean, in some ways, your mission is a bit easier to wake up to. So what would you tell them to try to infuse, you know, the same kind of commitment and energy you have for your mission to them? You know, I think I think everybody's got to find their purpose um, and make sure that they are doing what they believe to be is important work in the same way that I think I'm doing it. I mean, if you're the uh, if you're an executive at a hospitality group, uh, at the end of the day, people are choosing to spend their money and their time with you and your brand and your company. Uh, that's time away from uh, their work. It's precious moments that they're having with their family, making memories. And so, for me. Um, the customer service orientation of a hotel chain, for example, can be just as purpose-driven uh, as what we do here uh, at Scripps. It is easier to wake up um, uh, and, uh, and have this in your heart, but I think people who go into the hospitality industry uh, are able to do that. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think this is something that we own and own alone. I think um, being a person of mission and having purpose in your life does not come only if you work in journalism. I think it can be found in all measure of uh, ethical business. I have one more sort of heavy question before we move to a light round to, okay. end, to end the interview. And that is journalism itself. What's your hope for how it evolves in the next several years? And what's your deep concern about how it will evolve in the next few years? I mean, the, the product we sell, the product we create requires um, a level of literacy to understand and differentiate what we do from, um, from what uh, others uh, produce. Um, we have a news literacy problem in this country, uh, and it's only getting worse. And that news literacy problem comes uh, about because um, we, we all have a certain level of responsibility. Uh, marketers have a certain level of responsibility as we together 
uh, on the, the content creation side and the marketing side have blurred the lines with native advertising. Journalists have a certain level of responsibility for this problem we're in because um, they've blurred, we've blurred the line and we sort of think about uh, the, the lines being blurred with CNN and Fox News and MSNBC all carrying the word news and yet filling most of their airwaves, uh, most of the time on their airwaves with opinion uh, and punditry, not journalism. Um, uh, so, so, you know, what's at risk, I think, is ultimately the informed electorate. And so my hope is that we can work ahead to a new generation that is going to really reject uh, this highly polarized environment we're living in, where facts are questioned, um, the messenger is demonized, uh, and where we can move towards a uh, time when people will recognize not that journalism or news has to be like medicine, right? Or broccoli, right? Like we, 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 we cannot treat the consumer in a way that says you should consume us because we're good for you, even though we don't taste good, right? It's our job to create products that people want to spend time with. It's our job to create products that people either find lovable or necessary. Uh, but we have to all, I think, play a role recognizing, including the marketers that really ultimately um, support what we do. Um, we all have to recognize that uh, journalism is under incredible pressure, um, economic pressure. You know, newspapers are um, in real trouble. Uh, fortunately, local news brands like ours, I think, remain the number one way most Americans get their news and information. Uh, but uh, we're going to continuously be under pressure, certainly. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity on some of the um, emerging, in some of the emerging marketplaces where we do business, podcasting, digital audio, over-the-top television. We've got to make sure that marketers are spending their dollars in order to support journalism companies. Um, and so I think we all have to be enrolled in this mission together. If we get to a situation where, because the consumer uh, has so detached from quality objective journalism that um, they have no way to differentiate between what is propaganda and what is news, what is native advertising and what is journalism, or what is PR and what is journalism. Um, uh, I, 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 I do fear for our democracy. I mean, I, I do think that that's how we end up in a situation where um, we have a dysfunctional democracy. How do you think we build news literacy? Where does it have to start? Well, I think um, we all have a responsibility. Uh, I think our consumers have to treat news like they treat uh, all brands. I mean, you get what you pay for. So uh, if you want to uh, go to um, the store and uh, purchase the uh, cheapest detergent um, when it does not clean your clothes well or when it stinks um, uh, I, I don't think you're you're not you're not uh, you're not um, surprised right I mean I think we all believe you get what you pay for I think in the case of journalism the same is true 
I think we've got to become very discerning. I think if you're using your social media platforms as the way for you to navigate the news marketplace, which I think is absolutely fine, I think you need to understand the difference between a trusted brand run by a legitimate news organization and um, your friend copying and pasting something that is clearly uh, misinformation. I think um, we need to talk to our kids about becoming uh, more civic minded. You know, as schools have moved away from civics and moved towards uh, spending all of their time teaching the subjects that are tested on a state level, um, we've lost, I think, an important uh, component of um, literacy of high school. Uh, we've lost civic engagement. And so we've got to get back to teaching civics. We've got to get back to making sure our, our young people understand the way the government works and also how to navigate what is going to be the most crowded and complicated content marketplace that any generation has ever had to navigate. And so teaching them these things. And you know, we, we just um, recently announced a partnership with an organization called the News Literacy Project. And the NLP has a curriculum for teachers that is all about trying to get back into the classroom a way to teach uh, middle school students how to differentiate between dubious sources of misinformation and legitimate news. I think we've got to make sure that's a conversation that happens in school. It's got to be a conversation that happens around the dinner table. And frankly, it should be a conversation that adults have with one another when they're out socializing. Fabulous, Adam. And uh, I want to just just want to go through sort of a rolling thunder round of sure. of, uh, of questions to get your perspective on. The first one is favorite podcast. Probably an unfair question. You probably have several, but what do you listen to? Maybe on a most frequent basis. Uh, I gosh, I listen to so many podcasts. Uh, I love Freakonomics. Yeah. Uh, I really like our um, our our uh, our podcast about uh, food called the Sporkful. Um, I think some of the best investigative reporting is being done by American public media's In the Dark, fabulous podcast, uh, responsible really, I think, for the Supreme Court's review of the Curtis Flowers case. Um, uh, I like Mark Marin. I think Mark is one of the best interviewers uh, around today. Very good. First thing you do in the morning? Uh, I, I check my uh, email. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's probably before your what, coffee. Uh, yeah, before my coffee, I check my email. I uh, I, I oftentimes will return a couple of emails. I, I get up really early. Uh, wake my uh, make sure my daughter is awake so she can get ready for school, uh, and then the day just starts and we go from there. How do you stay fresh and current in your really really dynamic field? I read a lot. Um, uh, I travel a lot, and so I try to take the time when I'm on airplanes to read uh, industry material. Um, I'm a big fan of the Washington Post as well, uh, staying abreast of, um, I think, the, uh, the national uh, news is really important. And then, um, you know, I also spend a lot of time uh, consuming our products, the podcast that we produce, uh, Newsy, our uh, news brand, which is focused on sort of a younger audience, produces terrific investigative and objective quality journalism, watch a lot of Newsy, uh, and uh, um, I also enjoy Outside Magazine. Very good. Do you have a favorite ritual at Scripps, something that happens every month, day, year? Is there something that is a favorite thing you do around an event or a holiday or... 
No, not really. We have popcorn Friday. Oh, okay. There you go. Every, every I saw Friday. Your machine in your Yeah, every your Friday at three o'clock. Um, you know, this makes us hip and cool. Uh, you know, we, uh, we, we make popcorn and uh, employees in the corporate office here gather in our lighthouse lounge and, uh, and uh, have popcorn. And it's a good opportunity for people to, um, to chat and get together and, and, and connect in a, in a more social environment. Love it. Is there a series you're watching now that you love? Or have watched recently? Are you a series person? You- um, I am a series person. Um, uh, I uh, I loved uh, Fauda. Um, I actually uh, really enjoyed a Israeli uh, rom com series called uh, Srugim, which w- is about uh, modern Orthodox uh, young people dating in a a neighborhood in Jerusalem. It's it's really funny. I know it sounds sort of obscure, but it's on Amazon and it's it's excellent. It's really really good. That's our first review on that one. That's great. Yeah. That's great. So a great book you've read lately. Um, hmm. I lo- I really enjoyed the boys in the boat. Uh, I thought that was a um, a really good lesson on um, leadership and servant leadership and um, a heck of a story. Favorite thing you do when you go back to UCLA for a visit? Oh, always go to the student store, uh, take the kids uh, to Kirkhoff, uh, they um, and uh, have a have a cup of coffee. I mean, just almost for the point of it. They they recently got rid of the coffee drink that I um, I used to love, which was iced cappuccino royale. <laughs> the iced cappuccino royale gone, sounds, been replaced by something. Sounds very nineties. It, it was very uh, uh, very nineties. Yeah, yeah. Last question, who should we have on the CMO podcast? I think you should have Guy Raz on the CMO podcast. It's a good idea. Um, Guy's an old friend of mine uh, and an incredibly talented journalist and uh, interviewer um, and has a a pretty interesting perspective. I think Guy has... um, Is he a Bruin? No, no, no. Uh, but he, you know, guys, um, guy has created a personal brand for himself around curiosity. And, uh, I think he's done a really terrific job. Super. We'll try. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll need your help. No problem. Okay, great. Thank you, Adam. My pleasure. It was, it was awesome. great to be here. Yeah. Thanks. It was awesome. That was my conversation with Adam Simpson. I loved everything about that conversation, but I especially loved his honesty about not being prepared to be the CEO. He was surprised by the appointment, and then he got his act together and is now, two years into it, a brilliant CEO. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, Leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.